um, we were being shown, being told, being taught uh, that the mark of wisdom within uh, a congregation, within a group of God's people, is not necessarily um, seen or detected by the smartest person in the room or the person who seems to have the answer to all the questions. He's not the one that can answer, answer um, you know, the greatest, deepest riddles. Um, but according to 3, 13 through 18, wisdom within the body of God's people is marked out or is distinguished by the trait or the quality of gentleness and the ability to make peace. Right. I think part of what is implied in that chapter and part of what we'll go on to see here in chapter 4 is what we know just by normal lived experience. That anytime you bring more than one person into a room, you're going to have a variety of opinions, you're going to have a variety of temperaments and personalities, you're going to have people who fit well together, you're going to have people who don't fit well together. The way that a body like this is held together is not by a heavy hand. The way that a body like this is held together is when God gifts his people with wisdom so that through his word they can discern how to minister to one another, how to love one another, how to encourage the growth and the cultivation of righteousness without being combative with one another. If that was 3.13 through 18, it may be that James is still thinking along those lines as the Lord is working through him to write this letter. It's all fine and good, uh, in other words, to know that when we experience difficulties or conflicts or different personalities or opinions, that we need wisdom to know how to maintain this harmony that we have in the body. Um, but James has, has not necessarily addressed where all this potential division and hostility comes from, right? Wisdom is what you need to be able to deal with the, with the corrupt fruit that, that is born with all of our crazy opinions and, and lifestyles, but where does that divisive fruit come from? And 4, 1 through 3 gives us that answer. So follow along with me as I read James 4, 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This uncomfortable word is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, would you be good and faithful to shine the light of your word on our hearts and our minds? Expose to us those corrupt desires that so easily fight and win our attention and our affection such that we begin to turn in hostility to one another Give us the humility of Christ, we ask. Give us pure hearts who love you above everything else so that we in turn can love one another. We ask that you would do this so that more and more in our loves and affections and desires we look like our Savior Jesus Christ and do it by the power of your Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen. 
So James is addressing what the root cause is for conflicts that God's people experience, experience with one another, perhaps within a church setting, or you could even say, I'm sure that James is thinking even beyond just the gathering of God's people on any given Sunday or through the course of the week. I'm sure that this applies to conflicts that we experience in the home or in the workplace, whatever the case might be. James is addressing that, the source of our conflicts. Three things that we want to see here. Two come directly from the text, and then the third one, we have to step outside of the immediate text to try to bring in what we hope to be is a little bit of encouragement by the time we get through these three verses. So here are the three points. Number one, your conflicts come from your desire for pleasure. Your conflicts come from your desire for pleasure. Number two, your praying is corrupted by your desires. And then number three, you need a greater desire for better pleasure. Your conflicts come from your desire for pleasure. Your praying is corrupted by your desire. And number three, you need a greater desire for better pleasure. So here it is. James opens with a question, inviting us in to think, to consider, to ponder on the subject matter at hand, what is the source of all of this fighting and arguing that goes on among you? And James gives the answer. I want you to, to read back through this with me, if you will, and notice all of the second person pronouns and verbs that are used. Second person, like you, your. So what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members, you lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So if there is a problem with arguing and fighting, what is the problem? You are. Say, well, wait a minute. Where's the part about my wife? <laughs> or my husband? Or my children? Or my coworker? Or my boss? Or my employees? My in-laws, right? Where, where is that? Why? No. The source of your conflicts, the reason that you argue and the reason that you fight is because of you. All of this chaos, nonsense that goes on out here is merely a demonstration or an extension of a war that's going on in here. Right? You see that? You are the reason that you fight. You are the reason that you argue. There's just no way to get around the fact that that's what the Word says. 
More specifically, what we're told here is that it's not merely us, you, me, right? It's not that you fight, but the reason that you fight is because you're being driven by your pleasures, your desires, the things that you want to have. That's why you fight. So, if what we're being told here is true, and I think that it is, one of the things that we might consider then is that when you find yourself in the middle of a fight or an argument or a disagreement, the question to ask is not necessarily, what am I fighting about, but what am I fighting for? Do you hear the difference in that? Right? I was just, just thinking, watching the kids as they were up here singing, here's a, here's a very silly but painfully true example, right, from personal experience. Thinking of the kids up here, remembering when our kids were, were this age and were singing, and depending on how they did in the singing, right, were they paying attention to their leaders, were they singing out loudly, right? That, that almost always would come to play in our conversation as we were driving back home after church. You know, Anthony, Sean, Seth, Aaron, Leah, Casey, whoever, why didn't you, next time you need to, right? That, that little tension, that little conflict, what, 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 is, what is that? The issue there, if, if we were to be honest, if you could put our parental hearts on the table and expose it to the light, the argument or the frustration is not about the kids singing. It's about the fact that I don't want to be embarrassed by my children. I desire to be well-respected as a father who has his children in order. Do you see? So because my desire is that my reputation be upheld, that no one think less of me because of the way that my children are acting, I enter into conflict with my children, not first and foremost because of what they've done, more so because of what I feel it does to me. My desire for respect or for a reputation fuels that conflict. Think, if you will, just for a moment, what it is that you tend to fight or argue about the most. And then ask yourself that same question. Not what am I fighting about, but what am I fighting for? Arguments about a schedule or about time are rarely, if ever, about the schedule. It's that I desire convenience. I want the pleasure of being able to make this time my time. And when the schedule that's imposed on me isn't fitting my desires or my preferences, I'll fight for that. When I argue politics, or when I argue theology, or when I argue this or that, 
how often is that argument ultimately not really about politics or theology or any number of things that I can find to argue about? How much of it ultimately is going, is going or is owing to my desire to just simply win an argument? I don't even necessarily care if I persuade anyone. I just want them to see how smart I am on this topic. My desire to win compels me to argue and put someone in their place. Or I want my preference or my opinion to win out because it's the only one that actually counts. Do you you see how all this works? Much of what you argue about, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the workplace is not ultimately about the thing that you're arguing, but what you're arguing for. In arguing that issue or that topic, there is underlying that some sort of pleasure or desire that you're seeking to gain, or some sort of pleasure that you don't want to lose that you'll fight for. What do you love so much that you'll fight for it? Now, please, don't misunderstand. This is not to say that there is no time, no sense in which Christians are called to fight. Right? Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. In Jude he writes because he wants to encourage them earnestly to contend for the faith. That's, that's not what's being discussed here in 4, 1 through 3. It's not talking about fighting for eternal matters. It's not talking about fighting for defending the truth of God's word or God's reputation. This is all about fighting for my pleasures and my desires and going to battle over what I want. Big difference. So ultimately, if you're fighting about things that in light of eternity don't really matter, God would tell us in his word that the first person you ought to look at who is responsible for this argument is yourself. Number two, Not only does your conflict come from your desire for pleasure, but that same desire for pleasure corrupts the way that you pray. Notice there are two things that James says here that pertains to prayer. This is in the latter part of verse 2 into verse 3. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. That's the first way that your pleasure corrupts your prayer. You say, wait, where where is the prayer? Exactly. You don't pray. It seems pretty clear that the point that James is making here, or what we should say James is drawing on here, is what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, right? You remember the, the famous little pithy phrase, ask and you will receive, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. 
For everyone who asks, Jesus says, receives. You don't have because you don't ask. Now, here's the thing. You could read that and say or assume that it's just simply that the person has forgotten to pray. I don't think that's the case, though, because everything in verses 1 through 3 is tied into pleasures and desires. As a matter of fact, just a little side note here, if you look at verse 1 and verse 3, notice that when, he, when, when we're given the answer for the source of our conflicts in verse 1, the source is the pleasure, or some of your versions may say something like the passions, that wage war in our members. And then at the end in verse 3, the reason that you don't receive when you ask is because you're wanting to spend it on your pleasures or your passions. In other words, both at the front and at the back of this paragraph, the framing for this paragraph is framed by an examination of our faulty pleasures. Everything else in between is filling in the details. So that when we come to this statement at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask, we ought not to separate that from the problem that comes from our desires, our passions, and our pleasures. Why would our pleasures keep us from praying? Let me give just a couple of of potential answers to that. Number one is that we can be so consumed with fleshly desires and with the pleasures that we are jealously guarding that we don't want to give up that the only thing that we can set our eyes on is the prize, this treasure, this idol that we're trying to keep. If pleasure is held out to me, or if pleasure is threatened, a desire is threatened to be taken away, the only thing that I am setting my mind and heart on is how I'm going to either get or keep what it is that I want. And when that becomes the extent of my focus, my mental exertion, the draw of my heart, is it any wonder that I would not pray? I'm not thinking about God anymore. I'm not thinking about Christ or what I have in the spiritual blessings that are mine. I'm thinking about that idol. Why would I pray? Another reason that as we fight for our pleasures or desires that we might not pray is because I'm fully convinced that I can get this pleasure without asking God to give it to me. Have you seen who's standing in my way? <laughs> I'll take care of them with just a word. I'll cut them down to size. They'll get out of the way. I'll get what I want. I won't bother God with this. I don't need to pray because I can get what I want without asking God to give it to me. Or maybe another reason that we don't pray is because the truth of the matter is, 
if we were to take even a moment to reflect on what pleasure it is that we are jealously guarding, what desire we want to be satisfied or fulfilled, the truth of the matter is, if I were to consider that desire or that pleasure for a moment and then to consider the possibility of taking that desire or pleasure to God, I would be embarrassed to do so. I know that deep down, this is not something that I should be fighting for because God, as a loving Father, is very faithful to convict me by the work of His Spirit. I know, you know, even in the midst of your arguing, that you should not be arguing about this, don't you? I'm not going to take this to the Lord. If I took this into the, into the throne room of the king, I would be like a petulant child throwing a tantrum. No one goes to the king to throw a tantrum. No one goes to the king and says, give me my toy. So I don't pray. It'd be too embarrassing. It'd be too humiliating. Let me wallow in my self-centeredness rather than bring my self-centeredness into the light of God's glory to be exposed for what it is. I don't pray. But then on the other side of that, coin. James says in verse 3, when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's a pretty miserable picture that's being painted here, is it not? You don't have because you don't ask, but when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives so God doesn't give it to you. Listen, people, here's, here's the thing. We are so self-centered by nature. Our hearts are so deceitful and so easily corrupted that it is possible for us to pray for things that God would ordinarily give to His children, but He has to delay or even withhold that gift because of the way that our hearts will receive it. We will receive it and turn that gift into an idol. Or we will take that gift and we will prize and treasure it more than we do the one who gave it to us. Or, as James says here, we will take that gift and we will selfishly cling to it so that we benefit from God's blessing and we don't turn any of the blessings outward to share with anyone else. How does that contrast with the example that we see of Christ in the Scriptures? His delight, his delight was to do what the Father sent Him to do. He did not seek to serve Himself, but to serve others. He made Himself poor so that we could be made rich. 
And then as you move into further into the New Testament, you begin to see that this is not just the way that Jesus lived, but for everyone who follows Jesus, who claims that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, that is the model for their life as well. So when, when we're told here in verse 3, you don't get what you ask for because you ask for it with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That word for spending it on your pleasures is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Here's a, here's a great contrast. Paul uses that same verb about spending as he's writing to the Corinthians. So early in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, he makes this, this statement. He says that we are workers for your joy. What, what do you labor for, Paul? For your satisfaction? For your No, 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 no. No, I labor for their joy, their pleasure, their contentment their satisfaction. And then later, as he's talking about his love for the Corinthians, he makes this statement in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. When was the last time that your prayers, your asking God to give you something was so that you could spend it on someone else. When was the last time that you asked that God would so fill you with joy and contentment in Him that it would give you the freedom to forget about yourself because you are so full and so satisfied and now can put your entire focus on your family, on your friends, on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fill me that way, Lord, so that I can spend and be spent for them. Is that the way that you pray? It is embarrassing how selfish my prayers are. How easy it is for me to try to cover my selfishness and my self-centeredness by spiritual jargon and even use Scripture to try to justify my self-satisfaction. That is damnable. But that is my heart. So if your conflict in mind, if your conflict comes from your desire for pleasure, if your desire for pleasure is so infecting and corrupting that it even corrupts the way that you pray, how are you going to get out of this? This is number three. The only solution to this problem is that you need a greater desire for a better pleasure. Listen, we are hardwired for happiness. Do you, do you hear me on that? God has made us in such a way that we want to be happy. Wanting to be happy is not the problem. It is how we go about being happy 
or where we try to find happiness that is the problem. Your heart is hardwired for happiness, and your heart cannot exist as a vacuum. In other words, if you read 4, 1 through 3, and you say, well, the problem here is my desire for pleasure, my passions. Therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to totally empty my heart of anything that would be pleasurable or desirable, and it's just going to be a blank slate. That's not going to work. Your heart demands to be filled by some sort of joy. All of us look for happiness. Everything that we do is a move toward what we think will make us happy, and there is no getting away from that. And here's the thing. The Scriptures do not back away or shy away from that truth. God never tells us in His Word that we should not pursue pleasure. He tells us where true pleasure is to be found. Psalm 16, 11, In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. Why would God tell us that in His presence is fullness of joy, and that He has in His hand never-ending pleasure if He did not intend for us to go to Him to get those pleasures. God intends to satisfy your heart with joy and happiness and contentment to give you pleasure in Him so that the greater, purer, eternal, infinite pleasure that is Him is something that you can enjoy without any conviction, without any burden, so that those greater, purer pleasures crowd out all of those lesser, trivial, cheap pleasures that the world is telling you that you need. God never tells His people not to look for a reward, not to look for the prize. Instead, He tells us who gives the ultimate reward. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For those who come to God, listen, those who come to God must believe that He is, that He exists, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Is it any wonder then that earlier in the letter to the Hebrews, the author will say, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What makes James 4, 1 through 3 all the more convicting is that rightly understood, we're being reminded of the fact that my conflicts come from my corrupt, selfish, self-centered desires. That I fight for, I cling for, I grasp for those 
cheap dollar store joys. All the while, a good, loving father who is king of the universe says, I have everything to give you if you would just come to me. If we were more satisfied in Christ, we would find it much more difficult to argue and bicker. If I know that my reputation is secure because the reputation, my security is not in me but is ultimately in the person of Christ, what does it matter what anyone says about me? What does it matter what my name is in the community? I bear the name of Christ. What does it matter what someone may try to take from me. I stand to inherit the world. Why would I fight and argue with my brothers and sisters when God says there is room for everyone and I am a fountain of endless joy? So two sides to this. On the one hand, we ought to be rightly convicted when we read a passage like James 4, 1 through 3, because it exposes the shallowness, the fickleness, the weakness even, of our desires and our passions. But listen, Christian, listen, believer, if that's all that you do is look into yourself to see the weakness even the corruption of your own desires, and you don't then look to Christ, you're missing the reason that we're given James 4, 1 through 3. We have verses like this, not so that we will hang our head in shame and just navel gaze and whine and moan about how wretched and miserable we are. We are given verses like this so that we can see clearly and be reminded that in and of ourselves, there is no righteousness on which we can be proud or hang our cat on, but that we have all of the righteousness and all of the reward that we need in the person of Christ and in the blessings that are ours to come in the next age. Let's pray. Father, how unbelievably kind you are in giving good gifts to children like us who are so selfish, who are so self-centered. But thank you, Father, that we know that you will continue to give good gifts to us, not because we deserve them, but because we have been united to you. We have been adopted because of the righteousness of Christ. His pure and perfect desires are now counted as ours. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus.
We are heirs of the kingdom that is to come, and we will rule and reign with our Lord and Savior. The more that we consider the riches that are ours in Christ, would you cause the things of this world to look pale and pitiful in comparison? Considering the life that is ours in Christ, would you give us a greater desire and willingness to lay our lives down, to consider them to be cheap in comparison with the eternal life that has already been granted to us? Would you cultivate in our hearts and our minds here at Edgewood a selflessness that finds ultimate satisfaction in your joy and in your eternal pleasures? so that we could present to the world a demonstration of the fact that Jesus is all that we need. We pray this in his name. Amen.